Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today to talk a little bit about national security and his favorite rock and roll band is uh, John Kirby, a retired admiral in the United States Navy. He's uh, serving as the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. You can see him in the White House on occasion talking about national security issues from the podium where he had a, a, a moment I want to talk about, actually, uh, talking about why um, what readiness, uh, the ability to have an abortion uh, can lead to and is instrumental in readiness for our, our troops out in the field. So we'll talk about that and a lot more when we come back. Stick around. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me, as I said prior to the break, is John Kirby, spokesman for the NSC. And, and John, I, I guess I, the, the first question I'd like to ask you is, since this is the title, I've, I've spoken with numbers, a number of people in the DOD who say, actually, right now is one of the most, uh, the trickiest moments or, or most, um, or stickiest moments or serious moments in uh, national security since the end of the Cold War. Do you, do you agree with that? I think on, a, on many levels, that's, that's accurate. I mean, uh, the, the world is a much more complicated place uh, than I think we've ever seen before in recent history. And, it's, and that's not only because of the rise of so many threats and challenges by state actors, Iran, North Korea, certainly Russia, even the challenges uh, that the PRC represent, but non-state actors as well. We're still dealing with terrorist threats around the world. There's still uh, 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 in cyberspace uh, hacking groups that are not tied to any state necessarily. And then, of course, you have transnational threats, pandemics, climate change that we've just not seen uh, come to fruition like we have uh, over just the last few years. So it's a very what we call dynamic, which is a fancy way of saying complicated security environment out there. And Many of these challenges, state, non-state, transnational or national, whatever you want to put them, they affect all of us, not just one nation, but typically all of us, or certainly many in a given region. So that requires multilateral solutions. And when you get into 
really looking at multilateral solutions, whether they're through alliances, partnerships, or other informal arrangements like like the AUKUS arrangement in the Pacific, that also requires a sense of compromise and diplomacy, and that can be difficult. So on on so many levels, uh, just operating in the national security environment that we're in re- requires deafness, agility. It requires um, it, it requires uh, a reliance on and a and a uh, confidence in uh, the ability to to work by and through other other nations. And how difficult has that been in the last? three years for this administration? Well, the president has put a, a real premium on revitalizing alliances and partnerships since he came into office. It was one of his first goals, and he continues to work at that goal uh, every single day. And uh, w- w- without coming across as, uh, as trying to make some sort of political statement, I think it's just a matter of fact that uh, when he took office, uh, he inherited a, a system of alliances and partnerships that quite frankly had been damaged. Um, that the United States had not fully respected uh, our, our allies and our partners. We had not led on the world stage uh, the way that the rest of the world had come to expect uh, American leadership to look like and to be represented. Uh, and the president has tried to reverse that. And and it is it's it's hard to do because there had been a, a lack of trust and confidence in the United States on the world stage uh, in the previous uh, administration. The president's working hard to restore that trust and confidence. He he often tells the story about how you know when he goes to these international fora like the NATO summit that we just returned from, and he'll and he he keeps saying you know America is back, and some allies and partners will come up to him and they'll say well okay but for how long. So he understands that we still have more work to do in this regard. Well, and when you say um, returning to the way that America was viewed in in the uh, on the world stage prior, um, why is it important for for the rest of the world? And what's important about how America was previously viewed before, without getting into politics, what, what, b- viewed before the last administration? What was it that was valuable? about American stance on the international stage? I think some of it, Brian, has to do with respect for institutions, uh, just basic institutions. Uh, again, you can take whatever position you want on American policy overseas by any previous administration, Republican or Democratic, and, and argue the foundations of those decisions. Uh, but there was a general understanding that the United States stood for this thing we call the rules-based order. And again, I know that sounds like DC speak. What does that mean? Right. It, it reflects, it, it refers to the series of interconnecting alliances, partnerships, agreements, understandings uh, that, that nation states had coming out of World War II and through the Cold War. Uh, about simple things like the respect for sovereignty and, and territorial integrity, the respect for rule of law, uh, the respect for the UN Charter. Uh, th- this basic ideas, uh, the respect for human rights and for civil rights around the world, for, for freedom of expression and freedom of the press, all these basic ideas coalesced in this thing we call the rules-based order. Uh, and it's something that the United States truly led the way in, uh, again, after World War II and uh, up and through the Cold War. Uh, and I think there was a just a fundamental understanding, whether you were, whether you felt uh, uh, towards the United States uh, uh, poorly or, or, or fairly, that, that the United States stood for some of these ideals. Um, and, uh, and that, that seemed to have been, that seemed that the foundation of that seemed to have 
cracked uh, quite a bit. And, and the president has really, as I said, put a premium on trying to fill those cracks to 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 put to put the, to make that foundation more firm going forward. That the United States will stand for those things, for sovereignty, for territorial integrity, for the rule of law, for uh, you know, for the rights of, of of individuals around the world, for freedom of expression. Uh, those are basic ideas, and, and the president is reinserting them into our foreign policy. And so, in your estimation, how successful has he been? What does he need to do to improve? I mean, just take a—I would say just in the short—just uh, a short answer. Uh, the president believes that that he's been very successful in restoring American leadership on the world stage, and and I think you don't have to look any further than just this most recent NATO summit in Vilnius, where we welcomed, uh, uh, you know, we welcomed Finland in as the 31st ally, and soon we're now going to be welcoming Sweden in as the 32nd ally. And all of that uh, has a lot to do with the president's leadership of the alliance through this war in Ukraine. Um, and think about the commitments uh, that the that the allies made to Ukraine's long-term security. Think about the G7 joint declaration where, uh, again, this is outside of NATO, but G7 nations, again, at the president's leadership, coming together and um, and making it clear that 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 Ukraine will be a NATO member and that that we will have security commitments in place uh, to help them become uh, a member going forward. I could go on and on. I mean, whether it's the again the G7 meeting back in Hiroshima where there was a strong communique by all G7 leaders uh, about the the threats and challenges posed by the PRC and the and the need to de-risk our relations with uh, with China, but not decouple, particularly economically, from from China. So, I mean, these are these are all novel ideas, all really help dr- dr- uh, being driven by by President Biden and, and this administration. I could again, I could go on even you know getting us back into the Paris Climate Accord. Um, uh, th- this whole idea of the AUKUS deal between Australia, Great Britain, and the United States, and making sure that Australia can once uh, can soon have uh, nuclear-propelled submarines. So that will add incredible uh, capability and capacity, not just to the Australian uh, self-defense needs in the region, but to the region writ large, particularly, again, with the challenges going on with the PRC. The way we've strengthened the ASEAN um, uh, relationship between the United States and ASEAN and the way ASEAN has really coalesced uh, as, a, as, a, as a group. I mean, again, I I, I don't want to. I, I could. We could spend the next uh, well, what, twenty what minutes think? of this just on this. <laughs> well, what do you think we need to do to improve? There's the second part of that. I think. Look, there's always there's always opportunities to to deepen and grow relationships, to either um, to, to make strong relationships stronger, or to work on relationships that uh, you know that uh, th- that need help. Um, I think one of the most important things that we've got to stay focused on here uh in the in the months ahead is is this unity this international unity that the president has forged with supporting ukraine and making sure that that stays in place now of course it was on display at vilnius uh quite clearly <clears throat> that the world continues to support ukraine but we've got to make sure that that uh, that that stays in place when what do we do in the united states to make sure it stays in place because there are plenty of people in the united states who thinks uh, who think that it shouldn't and that we're we're waging war against russia well, actually, if you look at the, um, some recent po- polling, the, uh, the majority of Americans still continue to support Ukraine. Oh, they yeah. still continue to support. You know, they I'm still continue to support the way we're supporting Ukraine. But you know, I'm specifically talking about the members of Congress who can vote yay or nay on funding. 
Well, no, I know. I, I was going to, I was getting there. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the, it's okay. The, there are a small but vocal group of members of Congress, largely in the House and obviously on the Republican side, who are questioning support for Ukraine. Um, they don't represent their leadership. I mean, if you look at the House leadership from the speaker on down to the heads of the main oversight committees, all of them are, are in full support of continuing to support Ukraine. Now, they would take issue, uh, you know, with maybe some of the way that support's divided up uh, or what we're providing and when we're providing it, but they all continue to support Ukraine. And the president's confident that that support, which is bicameral and quite frankly, uh, bipartisan, will, will continue. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and it just shows no signs of, uh, of cracking. There you go. So let's talk a, about a couple of issues, uh, well, internationally that uh, highlight some of the danger that we're in. Um, yesterday, I believe it was, there was an ISIS, uh, monitoring ISIS, an MQ-9 Reaper drone that was damaged by Russian flares. It's the second time that that's happened. Adam Kinziger came out against it and said it was dangerous, expensive, and and needs to be monitored. Other members of Congress, he's a former member of Congress, other members of Congress have expressed uh, some concern. What exactly can we do about it and why? Uh, for those who don't understand, and I, and, and I do want you to take the time because there are plenty of people who don't understand the importance of this. This, this was a drone monitoring ISIS, I understand. Why is it important and what can we do about it? So let's, yeah, let's just back up just a little bit. We have less than a thousand troops in Syria that are partnering with Syrian democratic forces, Syrian forces, not Syrian army, but uh, these are Syrian, uh, uh, the groups that, uh, that are helping us fight ISIS. ISIS is a greatly diminished terrorist network, uh, nowhere near the level of influence, resources, training, uh, uh, or capability that they once had, but they are still there. They're still in Syria, and they still are trying to operate in Iraq, and they still represent a viable threat uh, to our national security and to the national security of our, our friends and partners in the region there. Uh, and so we have a small number of troops there, again, working alongside Syrian Democratic Forces to continue to go after that threat. In going after that threat, uh, you know, we obviously want as much eyes on as we can get. That's why you have drones, and that's why these, these drones are, uh, are powerful tools. They not only help us see what's out there, see where ISIS is and what they're doing, but also uh, have the opportunity in an over-the-horizon capacity uh, to eliminate terrorist threats. One of the things that President Biden committed to when we left Afghanistan was making sure that we continue to improve our over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability. This is uh, a very much a piece of that effort. Uh, what we're doing in Syria against ISIS. And it works. We have taken out uh, numerous ISIS leaders in conjunction with the SDF in Syria in just recent months. And that work will continue. Um, the Russians are also operating military forces in Syria and have been for quite so many years since the civil war broke out uh, early in the, in, in the uh, 2010, 2012 timeframe. And uh, they have tried to increase and improve their footprint there. Because the Russians are not there to go after ISIS, they're there to back up uh, Assad uh, and right. to help Assad in his civil war. But, but because you have a relatively small country where you have American forces, a small number, 
you have American forces going after ISIS and you have Russian forces who are backing up Assad in close proximity, we establish some procedures with the Russians, a deconfliction line, if you will, so that um, if we were going to be conducting an operation against ISIS, uh, that we could, in the appropriate time and fashion, make sure the Russians knew what we were doing to, to try to bring down the risk of miscalculation or conflict uh, between Russian and U.S. forces. And pretty much that system has held up and worked uh, for uh, all these many years. Um, recently, uh, and I'd let Russia speak for why this is happening. Uh, I, I, it's not like we can get inside their heads. They have you been, don't want to. <laughs> they have been they have been harassing uh, the the drone flights that we have been conducting. Drone flights, as I have reiterated, are simply designed to go after ISIS. They don't pose a threat to Russian forces. They don't pose a threat to Syrian forces. Uh, they are there for one purpose, and that is to go after ISIS. And you would think that even the Russians uh, would favor. Uh, eliminating the terrorist threat, wherever it is, even in, in Syria. But they have taken upon themselves to harass uh, these drones of late. And in a recent incident just this week, uh, that harassment led to the actual damaging of the propeller of one of these, uh, of one of these drones. Um, so we have clearly uh, articulated, we've condemned it. We've clearly articulated our concerns to the Russians directly. Uh, we urge them to stop this, uh, this harassing behavior. Uh, we will continue to use the deconfliction mechanism as we promised we would, and we are. We urge the Russians to do the same and to step back from this. Uh, this could lead to, again, miscalculations that, that nobody wants to see. Um, it's irresponsible, it's reckless, uh, and it's potentially dangerous. I will add one more point to this, and that is we will still do what we need to do in Syria. Uh, to uh, defend ourselves against the uh, the ISIS threat, uh, regardless of the Russian harassment, the mission in Syria is valid and it will continue. Well, that, that you know, I, I, when you say uh, having them that close, in, in, I always go back to the uh, Tom Clancy novel and, of course, the uh, Hunt for Red October, when the general said having your uh, your aircraft and our aircraft in close proximity is inherently dangerous. That that wars have started that way. I mean, that's that's the that's the danger of which you speak, is it not? That it would escalate conflict, and it could lead to something that neither one of us would really want. Yes, precisely. I mean, we're not looking for a conflict with Russia. Uh, the president's been very clear about that. Uh, not not in the least. Um, more critically, or I should say, just as critically, we want to be able to continue to conduct operations against ISIS in Syria. Uh, efficiently, effectively, and as safely as possible. And and just for for listeners everywhere, if you want to understand the Syria is only about ninety percent the size of Minnesota. This is not a large country. I mean, it's and so the agreements that you're talking about are necessary for both countries, are they not? In order to conduct operations in the field. Well, we're not we're not concerned about the. Uh, the Russians being able to conduct our operations s safely. Um, we are concerned about our safety um, and our ability to conduct our missions in, in the most efficient, effective way. And harassment by Russian aircraft not only impedes our ability to conduct that mission, but again, it, it could lead to miscalculation. It could lead to an escalation of tensions between the United States and Russia, which frankly is in no one's interest. It's not right. in the Russians' interest and it's certainly not in ours. And I, I'm, I mean, diplomatically, though, John, I mean, you all aren't looking to inter interfere with Russia. 
it's Russia not at all us yeah okay so I mean when I talk about uh, uh about their operations I mean you're not looking to disrupt anything that they would do via the agreement that we have diplomatically you're just looking for us to be able to conduct ours yes that's correct we are oh, okay. we are focused on our operations in Syria not on not on uh, Russian operations right either. which is one of the things that we've heard the other the other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about before we go to the break was the other thing that came out this week was um, in uh, South Korea we now have is it two nuclear submarines and uh, of course <laughs> North Korea has come out and threatened nuclear conflagration but I guess they've done that you know so often before that it's hard to, I, I you tell me is it hard to take him seriously or are, are we taking it seriously and why has that posture escalated in that part of the world well look again I think taking a step back here is is useful when we came into office uh, we faced a North Korean ballistic missile program that was continuing to advance and North Korean nuclear ambitions that were continuing to advance. Um, and we made it clear to Pyongyang that this administration would be willing to sit down without preconditions and talk about how we together can denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Because I think we, we should all be able to agree that, uh, that that's not leading to better security, stability, or prosperity for anybody on the peninsula, what Pyongyang is doing. Um, the North Koreans have rebuffed uh, those offers continually uh, in, uh, in absence of any kind of diplomacy to get at denuclearization. We have to make sure that we can defend ourselves and defend our South Korean allies. Five of our seven treaty alliances in the United States are in the Indo-Pacific region, and of course, one of them is with the Republic of Korea. We have a treaty commitment uh, to help Korea defend itself and to be able to come to the defense of Korea should it be attacked. Uh, so absent a diplomatic breakthrough here, we've got to make sure we have the right capabilities. And, and as Kim Jong-un continues to conduct these launches and these tests, he learns. Even when those tests fail, he learns. He has the opportunity to get better. So we've got to make sure, again, nobody wants conflict, but we got to make sure that we're properly ready and prepared uh, should it come to that, which is why you're seeing the president add to our uh, defensive capabilities in and around the peninsula. That includes these port visits we've talked about. It includes increasing our intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance capabilities in and around the peninsula. It includes, and this is not a small thing, and this is related to those those submarine port visits. It, it includes improving our bilateral military cooperation with the Republic of Korea, but also working to improve the bilateral cooperation between the Republic of Korea and Japan, and consequently, the trilateral cooperation in a military way between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. So there's an awful lot of energy and effort going on. You're seeing training events now coming back online and, uh, and, and being more inclusive um, and more relevant to the threats that we continue to face. And we're going to have to continue to do that. And, you know, North Korea would tell you that, that they believe that in order to survive as a nation, they need to possess a nuclear weapon, that being part of the nuclear club would put them on the big boys table, so to speak. Um, well, 
Go I won't ahead. speak for Kim Jong Un, but clearly that's not our view. We believe that uh, we believe that a better path forward for everyone living on the Korean Peninsula is a North Korea without uh, nuclear weapons and without the, the kinds of uh, offensive capabilities that they continue to try to improve. How serious is this? How I mean, for an American citizen to look at it and go, you know, there's so much going on in the world. How 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 much danger does this place? us in how how serious well it, it's a, it's obviously a serious threat um as i said every time they test they continue to improve whether it's the range of their missiles or uh or the capacity that those missiles uh the kinds of weapons that it can carry um and of course you know we fully expect that there'll be a, a yet another nuclear test at some point in the future we haven't seen that in a while but we have to expect that there probably will be one um kim jong-un tends to uh, react to either statements by the United States and the West or training exercises and and uh, and pronouncements and you know, mutual visits by uh, by uh, Korean officials here or U.S. officials going to to Korea. Uh, so there's a lot of reactivity uh, based into uh, why he decides to do some of the things he does and when he does them. But that doesn't mean that you can just brush him off your shoulder and say, oh, well, he's just overreacting. I mean, you have right. to take each one of these seriously because, again, even when they fail, and they fail, they do fail sometimes. Yeah. Uh, they still they still learn from that failure. So, um, look, it's a serious issue. It's a serious uh, concern. If it wasn't a serious concern, we wouldn't, A, make the offer to sit down without preconditions and negotiate, or B, in the absence of that, uh, really invest the way we're investing uh, in the kinds of capabilities we need there. So we're, we're taking it seriously. It's not just the United States, the rest of the world is as well as, uh, as we should. I mean, this is not a regime that uh, we have a lot of contact with. Uh, we don't have diplomatic relations uh, d directly with the, uh, North Korea. Uh, this is not a regime that, uh, that, uh, that, is, uh, that, that is sensitive to a lot of international pressure. In, in general, they try to, as much as they can, rebuff it. Uh, there's very few nations uh, on the planet that uh, that can really have much influence uh, in North Korea. China is one of them, and obviously uh, we like love love to see China doing more to use that influence on Pyongyang. Um, so this is a this is a tough problem to get at. Could they could they launch a missile at at the mainland of our country? Well, again, I don't want to get into intelligence assessments. I would just tell you that they continue to improve. Uh, their intercontinental ballistic missile capabilities and try to improve the the range. And I think I'd leave it at that. Well, well he he th has threatened and says he can. So, I mean, I, I'm just asking, is he telling the truth or not in our assessment? What I would, he he continues to try to improve his capability. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and what's, how do we, uh, and our, and China's reaction so far is, at least on the face of it, has been to not really press him too hard. Is that fair assessment? We we don't believe it's in China's interest that North Korea develop uh, nuclear weapons, and um, we certainly don't believe it should be in China's interest to see conflict on the, the Korean Peninsula of any kind whatsoever. I mean, that's right up there uh, on China's doorstep as well. Um, we believe that Beijing has influence in Pyongyang, um, and we would like to see them use that influence more. 
uh, we would certainly like them to see, you know, see them fully implement the sanctions against the, the North Korea, one of the most heavily sanctioned uh, countries on the face of the of, of the earth. And yet China does not fully implement those sanctions, which, of course, gives North Korea uh, sources of revenue to continue to develop their military capabilities, even at the expense of their own people. So we would like to see China use their influence more than they are right now. And finally, on this issue, and the last question before we go to break is um, with the uh, with the recent revelation about an American soldier bolting for the border and uh, in North Korea, how is and apparently wanting to be there, how has that affected relations or or has it? In terms of relations between the United States and North Korea, it has had no effect on that. Again, we don't have diplomatic relations with Pyongyang. We have uh, we have other channels with which we can communicate uh, with them, largely through the UN. Uh, but there's no diplomatic relations, and and this incident uh, hasn't changed that whatsoever. I, I would tell you we uh, continue to uh, we 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 have communicated uh, in, in, in we have had initial communications with the with Pyongyang again through uh, appropriate channels about um, about this incident, uh, but we still don't know where this young man is. Uh, we don't know how he is physically. Um, and we've had no communication with him, uh, and we continue to make it clear, again, through appropriate channels, that uh, that we want him back. We want him returned to the United States and, and to his family. There you go. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have a lot more. Stick around. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me is uh, NSC spokesman John Kirby. And John, before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, South Korea and uh, North Korea. And um, I, I'd like now, and we've talked a little bit about the war in Ukraine. I want to go back to that in a minute. But you said something last Monday in a uh, press briefing room when asked about the um, why is uh, allowing abortions in the military uh, key to um, combat readiness. Your your answer was from the heart. It was it was uh, and it's it spoke to the matter very well. For those who didn't hear it, um, I'm going to ask you to give it again. But I have a question after you're done about it. So. Why is it important for combat readiness? I think it's important for people to remember that we are an all-volunteer force, have been since 1973. That means that every person serving in uniform has made a conscious decision on their own to raise that right hand and, and to make the necessary sacrifices to serve in uniform. And it does require sacrifice. One of the sacrifices, one of the things you give up when you agree to join the military is the right to determine on your own where you're going to live. 
um, and and that's, and and you know the kind of healthcare that you're going to be able to get because you're inside the military healthcare system, and that's a great system, by the way. Uh, I can speak from experience with that. But you don't get to determine everything about your personal life. Um, the military issues you orders, and you go where you're ordered to go, where where the duty that you've signed up for demands of you. Sometimes that duty will demand of you that you go to a state in our country that may have laws right now that are very restrictive when it comes to reproductive care. And if you are a female member and one in five members of the military are women, 20% of our force. And we also have, of course, many women that are part of our military family network. And how and large your is order to and how the large force, I mean, the, the, the force active duty reserve all writ large is, you know, more than 3 million. Um, That's a large so you number have, of women. <laughs> it, it's it's, it's an, a very large number of women. And because they're volunteers and because they've agreed to go where they're sent, um, they have every right to expect that the military is going to do everything that it can to take care of them and their families. Uh, that's financial security, of course, but it's also medical security. Uh, it, it's health care. And part of a woman's health care is, of course, reproductive health care. And if you're a, a woman in the, in the military and you're being sent to a state where, ha- where there's a very restrictive uh, set of laws uh, uh, about abortion and reproduct- reproductive care, uh, that you can understand, I hope everybody can understand, why that would give them trepidation about continuing to serve without an opportunity to make sure that they have the right health care available to them uh, close by um, and, and you know, accessible. Uh, so the Pentagon has put in place a policy where uh, if uh, you are assigned uh, to a state where reproductive health care is not available, obviously we don't want our, our service members, nor do they want to violate state's laws. So the Pentagon's put in a policy in place where if you need that rep- reproductive health care, you will get the time off and some travel allowance to go take care of that. Uh, it's the right thing to do for people. It sends the right message, not just to the women of the military, but to everyone in the military, that we mean what we say, that it's a covenant. When you raise that right hand and you agree to take on service in the uniform, when you agree to literally put your life on the line, you, that, that, the, that the Defense Department, that the United States government will be behind you, will support you, will do everything it can to make your service uh, as, as, as meaningful as possible. Uh, and that includes, again, looking after your health care and that of your family members. That's the covenant. That's what we mean by it. Uh, and it's important. It's important for them to know that. Now, we have one senator out there who, because he objects to that policy, and somehow thinks it's illegal. It is not illegal. It is well within the law, and it is well within the authorities granted by the Secretary of Defense. And as I said earlier, it's the right thing to do for the people that raise their hand and serve. Um, but because of because of his objections, Senator Tuberville is now holding up the promotions and, and future assignments of some 280 military officers, generals and admirals. And so we have two readiness concerns. Your question was about readiness. One is yes. the readiness of our force. Proper health care, you, you know, you can't have a ready force if it's not a healthy force. And reproductive care is part of health care. Health care makes our force stronger. It makes it more viable. 
You, you want to have a healthy force. Number two, you also need a force that's well-led. You have to have officers in command of that ready, healthy force. And Mr. Tuberville is holding up now the careers of 280 of those leaders. And at a time, just look at the first 20 minutes we were talking, Brian, about North Korea, Ukraine, China, alliances and partnerships and everything. I mean, at a time when this national security environment is as dynamic and dangerous as it is, you really need leaders in these assignments. Senate confirmed leaders with all the authorities that they need uh, to command their troops. And Senator Tuberville is holding is holding that up. Uh, and pretty soon it's going to have a significant effect on our military readiness because officers aren't going to wait forever for that next assignment. Some of them may walk. In fact, there was recent reporting that the Army has asked something like 20 senior generals to to not retire, to stay in their in their posts uh, because of this. Um, so they're giving but specifically up specifically because of this. Yes, yes, exactly. Because specifically because of this. So they're giving up their hard earned and well deserved retirements, some of them, to stay in. Some of them will will say no and they will walk. And they will walk leaving that job vacant. And, and again, at a time when things are as dangerous as they are, um, this is not the time for a political stunt like this to, to engender uh, partisan politics into what should be the most apolitical of our institutions, which is the military. The irony here is Senator Tuberville says that the Pentagon's policy is what's injecting politics into uh, into the military. Just to be clear, the Pentagon's policy is looking after the health and well-being of women service members and women family members, which is part of their covenant. That is what makes for a ready force, is a healthy force. Um, It is the senator who is injecting politics into the military by holding up the promotions of qualified men and women, uh, leaders all, uh, because he doesn't like a policy that, that, that in his state's laws and in his personal view, uh, he finds a, a, a objectionable. Uh, that is injecting politics into the military in the worst possible way. In, well, you got to my follow-up question before I could get there myself. That, and that's, at the end of the day, it's the uh, senator, it seems, that is um, endangering the United States, the sovereignty of the United States of America with this kind of decision. Yes? This, 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 I mean, you can just imagine that some of our adversaries, and you and I were not just long ago talking about some of them, have to be looking at this with a, a sense of glee that, uh, that the greatest military in human history uh, is... The, the readiness of that military is going to be damaged by the actions of one senator uh, in one state uh, b- because he has an objection to one policy. And is there any, uh, I mean, we are at loggerheads. Is there any chance of that breaking soon? I don't know. Um, I know that the senator has had a couple of conversations with uh, Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I don't know the outcomes of, of those uh, conversations. Uh, there, there are notably many of the senator's colleagues on both sides of the aisle who object to what he's doing. Uh, and in really, uh, uh, obviously, short of him changing his mind, which is the right thing to do, uh, we certainly would look to those colleagues, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, uh, to use the appropriate pressure and leverage uh, that they might have to to get him to to change his mind, 
I mean, it's be going it's going to have a deleterious effect on our readiness. It's also going to have a deleterious effect on morale and uh, and uh, and unit cohesion as well as as families are going to be increasingly affected by this um, because now you've got families who can't move. We talked a little minute ago about families who can't yeah. retire. Um, it, you know, but there's going to be families, not just the families of these admirals and generals, but the subordinates under them that are also waiting in line to move up and move on. Uh, they won't be able to 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 buy a new house or, or rent a property. They won't be able to pick a school for their children. I mean, summer's coming to a close here, and and there there are many families that are literally in limbo. Spouses. Here's another one. Spouses who can't move on to another job. I mean, one of the things that that uh, Secretary Austin has worked really hard on is spouse employment, making sure that military spouses have uh, ample opportunities to find employment wherever they their spouse, their military spouses is is ordered to. Again, because they don't get to decide where they go, so they have to. They're sort of at the whim of the military. Uh, many of these military spouses, and and it's important for them to work and and having a little bit of certainty, a little bit of stability in that employment um, goes a long way, not only to the individual family's financial health, uh, but to the individual family's decision to stay in the service, to want to stay. Um, and now you have spouses, many of spouses who just, they can't go find a new job because they don't know when or where they're going to be going next. And, and pretty soon people are going to start voting with their feet. Um, uh, you know, we have a saying in the military, you, you recruit the sailor or the soldier, however you want to put it, but you retain the family. Right. It is the family sitting around the kitchen table that makes the decision. Are we going to sign up for another four years? Are we going to take another set of orders or is it time to go? Is it time to get, you know, become private citizens? And this will factor heavily into those decisions that this, the, these holds and the freeze that it's literally putting uh, on the movement of hundreds of military officers at this time. And at the end of the day, I, again, I, I can't stress enough, as Tuberville has said that this is a violation of law, it's actually him who is, I would submit, is uh, subverting the will of the, of the, of, of the country and, and putting us all in peril with his moves. But you Well, said look, to be fair, he, there, there, you know, there is a... You know, there the Senate has has its rules, and he is operating within the rules of the yes. Senate. The the right of a senator to to implement holds. Uh, nobody's questioning no, the I'm not procedure necessarily, but uh, but it is it is already having an effect on military readiness, and that effect will only uh, grow exponentially as time goes on. I mean, think about this, Brian. For the first time in 150 some odd years, we do not have a commandant of the Marine Corps. Um, and by the end, well, I'd say by the end of September, <clears throat> by the end of September, if he doesn't lift his hold, uh, his blanket hold, you're not going to have a confirmed Army Chief of Staff. You're not going to have a confirmed Chief of Naval Operations. You're not going to have a confirmed Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. So you will have four of the six services without a head. Now they'll have acting officers, uh, of course, in, in place, but you won't have a Senate confirmed leader for those, for those services. And what's the uh, importance that of that? That is unprecedented in American history. And oh, by the way, 
I'm sorry, I don't know if you asked this. Maybe I, maybe yeah. I might have stepped on you, but oh, by the way, you also wouldn't have a, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. Yes. And what is the importance of that for those? Now, you and I both know why, but for those who don't, why is that so important? If you have, what's the difference between an acting and the actual head? Well, in many cases, uh, an acting officer can perform almost all the functions. There are some functions that, uh, you know, that a, an acting official uh, either won't have all the authorities to do or won't have the sufficient experience to do it uh, in a way that a Senate confirmed, fully promoted admiral or general will, will have. There you go. So uh, I'm going to switch gears now and go back to the war in Ukraine before we go to our next break. And that was, um, we, we've talked about this. And in fact, I think I asked you in the briefing room uh, about this a little bit. Um, it's been slow, the counteroffensive in Ukraine. It is, uh, it, as you said, I believe you said there, it's it's far harder to, to uh, mount an offensive campaign than it is a defensive campaign. And we still don't know what the fallout from uh, the Wagner Group mutiny will be in the future, if there will be any. But as you take a look at what what we see, and it, of course we know battlefields are all, always fluid. Where do we see this? How much is this going to be a, a Vietnam style campaign in Ukraine that lasts ten years, fifteen years? Is it going to? Do you see it clearing up? naturally more more quickly where what's the assessment from from you guys in national security about it today it's very difficult to know with certainty uh, even the ukrainians will tell you that they're not moving as far as fast as they would like um uh, it, but they are moving and i think that's important for people to know it, it's not we're not at a stalemate at this at this time they they are still making progress um and uh, we obviously want to do everything we can to help them make the progress they want to make. Uh, and as I said, they've admitted that they're not they're not there yet. Um, but it's difficult to know where this is going to go on or on what timeline. I think what is obvious and clear is that the weeks and months ahead uh, are going to see some some vicious fighting. It's already been vicious fighting. There will be more vicious fighting in the weeks and months ahead uh, as Ukraine continues to prosecute this counteroffensive. And they are running up against Russian defenses that have been well prepared. The Russians had months to get them ready. Defense in depth, we call it, multiple lines of defense. And I'm talking about, when I talk about lines, I mean, I'm real lines, like entrenchments. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they are dug in. And uh, those entrenchments are protected by a significant amount, significant number of minefields. Minefields are tough to go through on the best of days, uh, they are particularly tough to go through when you're being shelled and, and shot at with mortars. And that's what's happening to the Ukrainians every single day, which is why you're going to continue to see mine clearing equipment in the security assistance packages that uh, that we continue to uh, provide Ukraine even even today. Uh, so we're, we're focused on making sure that they get everything that we, we did before the counteroffensive started, that they had everything they needed and we, we ensured that but they have gone through some of that inventory. And so we're going to continue to provide them uh, the material that they most need uh, to, uh, to have the most success in, in the counteroffensive. But, but make no mistake, um, uh, there's going to be vicious fighting again in, in the weeks and months ahead. And, yeah, months. That, um, but 
to your point, and I, this is the question that I asked also, is it, it, it appears that with Russia targeting grain shipments now, it's particularly, particularly horrifying that uh, there are going to be people around the world that face starvation because of a war in Ukraine, yes? No question about it. Uh, we saw how food prices shot up uh, the last time that Russia targeted Odessa and targeted uh, grain shipments out of Ukraine. That's why that grain deal uh, was so important. And again, we're grateful to the UN and for President Erdogan for helping broker it. Um, and President Erdogan tried very, very hard to get this extension in place. Um, but we are now seeing the same volatility in food prices that we saw back then, uh, more than a year ago. Um, and for anybody that doubts why those food prices are going up, uh, you, you shouldn't have any more doubt uh, than what you've seen in the last week. It's because of the effect of Russia's war in Ukraine and Russia's uh, uh, re reckless decision to get out of this grain deal. And, and they're, they're compounding it. Not only, I mean, the, the prices shot up when they announced that they were going to suspend the extension of the deal. Um, they've shot up uh, again uh, because the Russians are actively targeting now grain uh, the grain infrastructure in Ukraine, hitting Odessa, hitting uh, 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 grain storage areas, literally destroying, while it's sitting there on the docks, tens of thousands uh, of tons uh, of grain that, that were being prepared and destined for places where people really need it, in uh, what we call the so-called so global south. This is, these are uh, developing countries in Asia and Africa, Latin America. Uh, and, and the Russians had this uh, terrific propaganda game going on, particularly in Africa, where they, they blame the West for food scarcity in Africa. It's all because uh, the West is making it harder for Russian grain to get out. M make no mistake. There were, there were no sanctions on Russian fertilizer, and Russian grain was able to get out of the Black Sea as well under the deal. Uh, but Ukrainian grain was also able to get out, which helped keep food scarcity at a more manageable level in places like Africa. Uh, and African leaders and the African people need to understand, no matter where they live on the continent, uh, that the food scarcity that they are now feeling and will continue to feel is without question due to one uh, party, and that party is Russia. And is there a motive behind it? I mean, I know you've said before, and and I did, and you've said it multiple times in in the in the briefing room. It's hard to get inside the head of 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 uh, Putin, and God knows I wouldn't want you to do it. But at the same time, is there any is there any battlefield motive for this, or is it just something that seems to be you know at the whim of of Vladimir Putin? Is is there anything militarily that can be gained from this? The only thing that I mean, again, I, I don't want to, to speak for them and uh, or justify what they're doing, uh, no, but I, I, could, I would say that it, it, I, I would say that on the face of it, again, without knowing the psychology here on the face of it, um, it is of a piece of Putin's desire, particularly over the last eight to 10 months of this war to really try to break the Ukrainian will. Um, you've seen uh, increasing attacks on civilian targets, power, water, transportation, uh, and now grain. Uh, he, he has 
consistently, in addition to going after Ukrainian troops, spent a lot of ammunition, literally and figuratively, going after uh, the civilian population of Ukraine and trying to break their backs, trying to break their will, um, and trying, trying to make it hard just to be a Ukrainian. Um, and so, again, I can't say that that's exactly what triggered this. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. But it is certainly of a piece of that approach by Putin to weaponize uh, uh, yet another what we would consider a civilian asset, in this case, food. I mean, he's weaponized information. He's weaponized energy. And clearly, once again, he's weaponizing food. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's that, you know, thanks for that, because for those who are trying to make heads or tails of it, there are all kinds of speculation. You know, Putin's gone crazy. The Wagner group drove him nuts and now he's desperate. But yeah, what you're what you're pointing does fit in with some of the things he's done in the past. And that would seem to make sense. Finally, the, the last question about the Wagner group. What do we know about what has happened? And is there any update for us on the fallout from that mutiny. I saw a New York Times piece, I think it was today, saying that uh, at, at the beginning when the mutiny occurred, he was, uh, Putin was stunned and quiet and uh, uncharacteristically so. Um, but other than that, no one seems to know if there's going to be any fallout at all from it. We don't know. I mean, uh, we simply don't have insight into the inner workings of the Kremlin to that, uh, to that degree. We know that some Wagner uh, troops have uh, moved on to Belarus. It's not clear exactly how many or what they're going to do there. Uh, obviously, the Ukrainians are watching this very closely, as are uh, uh, many of our eastern flank NATO allies. Um, uh, some of them, we believe, are still in Ukraine, but not many, and they don't appear to have uh, any effect on the battlefield. It doesn't look like they're involved in any of these Russian defenses or fighting in any way. And then, of course, they still have, Wagner still has uh, assets and people in Africa where they continue to destabilize countries like Mali. And, and we do believe that some Wagner forces have moved from Ukraine uh, in, into uh, their Africa uh, projects. But again, where this is going, it's difficult to know. Uh, Wagner is still Wagner. Uh, I, I know Putin said they're illegal, basically trying to, at least to me, it looked like he was trying to sort of delegitimize them, uh, but they but they still exist as an entity and they are still doing pretty bad things, particularly in Africa. So we're going to keep watching them. Uh, as you saw shortly after Mr. Prigozhin's uh, uh, event, we uh, right. we levied some sanctions against uh, Wagner in, uh, in Africa. We'll continue to do that as they continue to destabilize those places. Sounds good. We're going to take another short break. And when we come back, well, one of the fun parts of this podcast is always breaking through and finding out some of the stuff that, that makes you tick. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. 
Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And John, it's been a with me is uh, NSC spokesman John Kirby. John, it's it's been fascinating, and as we as always, uh, it, it, it is fascinating as always. But one of the uh, things I like to do on this podcast, one of the things that we've done is try to to uh, introduce our audience to people on a more personal basis. So, with that said, I, I, I'm not going to you know embarrass you or anything. But what would you, if you have a weekend alone with you and 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 your spouse and you, your perfect weekend? what would your weekend getaway look like? Well, that's an easy one. Um, <laughs> not long, not, we, uh, not long ago, my, uh, 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 an elderly relative of my, my aunt, she died 96 years old, lived, lived in a, in a small cottage that was built in 1925, uh, on St. Petersburg beach, just, uh, uh, just South of the famous Don Cesar, that pink hotel. Um, and, uh, and my wife and I, uh, purchased it, uh, from her estate when she died, she wanted to stay in the family. And, um, my wife and I uh, purchased it to keep it in the family. And so that's our, that's our getaway when we can get away. There's not a very often, not, not many times we can do that. Uh, but it's a, it's a great little place and it's, uh, right near, uh, right near the, the Gulf of Mexico. It's not actually on the beach, but I could probably throw a clamshell and hit the Gulf of Mexico if I wanted to. Um, and I grew up in St. Petersburg, grew up there on the beach. So that's home to me. And um, every time I get to go down there, just to, I know this is going to sound corny, but just to smell the salt air uh, and to feel that Gulf breeze, uh, it just takes you, it takes you right back to your childhood. And it's just a, it's a, a wonderful, lovely place to go. And it's quiet and, uh, and we very much like it there. And what music are you listening to while you're there? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I am and have I've always been a Jimmy Buffett fan, even from when I was a kid. And I, 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 growing up on the Gulf Coast of Florida, you know that's that's sort of a given. So I certainly listen, still listen to Jimmy Buffett. But my absolute favorite music artist, without question, hands down, I've got everything he's ever recorded is Alan Jackson. Uh, I just no think kidding. he's the oh, I think he's the the single best uh, country music performer there's ever been. I just yeah, I got I have literally everything he's ever done. You know, who is a big fan of Alan Jackson's actually is, a, I believe is a, Waylon Jennings was a, is a huge fan of his. Go well, on. I'm a fan of Waylon Jennings too. I mean, I, I love, I love old country music. I mean, I, my dad listened to it and, you know, I, I used to work for my, he was a mechanic and uh, owned a little car garage in a, in a town called Seminole, Florida, not far from St. Pete. And um, my job was to sweep the floors and deliver the cars that were repaired and, um, he always listened to country music on the radio. So I did. So, you know, Waylon Jennings and, uh, Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Mel Tillis and, uh, you know, all those guys, I, I grew up listening to all that stuff. Um, and I think he, he might, my dad was, was gone before Alan Jackson really took off, but I think my dad would have loved Alan Jackson. And he sings with that same sort of sense of tradition in his music. Yeah, that's all right. So usually I ask uh, Beatles or the Stones, but with you, I'll ask Waylon or Johnny Cash. Oh, I'd say Waylon. Really? Johnny Cash yeah. or Willie Nelson? Uh, Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but I like I like Willie Nelson too. I mean, uh, you know, again, uh, you talk about longevity. I mean, what a yeah, what a what a career. And I actually had the chance to meet him once. Well, I was with the I, I had a tour with the Blue Angels as their spokesperson. I was not a pilot, um, and uh, Willie Nelson was wanting to use Blue Angel footage for a video that he was doing for one of his songs. And of course, we had to go through all the legal hoops to make that work, but it, but we got there. Uh, and so I had the chance to spend the day with him as he toured the factory and the manufacturing plant where they make uh, the F-18 Hornets that the Blue Angels fly. So I got to spend the whole day with him. And uh, what a gentleman, just a terrific, terrific man. Uh, I'll never forget it. And, uh, and I was a fan of his before then, but uh, certainly still a fan now. So uh, <clears throat> if, uh, if you could meet one celebrity, dead or alive, if just one, who would it be? Oh man. Well, I, I gonna sound gonna sound like I'm throwing the answer away, but I'm truly not. Alan Jackson. I, I would <laughs> I would really love to I'd really love okay. to, to meet Alan Jackson. <laughs> we'll get you to meet Alan Jackson, other than Alan Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> other than Alan Jackson. Um uh Dale Earnhardt. I oh. um I yeah, yeah, I, I also uh, I interviewed him a long time ago. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I also I I I uh, I love NASCAR. I've been watching stock car racing again since I was a kid, and um and used to watch it you know with my father uh, on the weekends, and um I was a I was a big fan of of Dale Earnhardt for many many years, and of course like everybody was just just so struck when you know when he was killed at the end of the yep. Daytona 500. Um, but uh, but I would I think he would be a fascinating guy to sit down with and and uh and have a beer with and just and and uh and talk to but i think i think he would i think he'd be a fascinating and in terms of celebrity now if we're talking historical figures i think the answer would be would be a, a little different but um All right. but I, historically I, I who would it fascinated be? me well that's that's hard because there's just so many there's so many um but i would i yeah, that's a tough one i i you know who I think I would love to to just sit and listen to would be Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, the history she saw, the impact she had before, during, and after FDR's uh, presidency. Um, I mean, just I, I don't, I just don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how many other individuals, let alone women, just individuals. Yeah from the 20th century had such a, 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 a long and deep impact. I would, I would love to sit down and talk to her. That, that would be cool. All right. Now, so Tom Petty grew up in, in your neck of the woods. You, you didn't, you weren't a rock and roll fan. Weren't a Tom Petty fan. No, nah, no, nah, I was never really a rock and roll. I, that, that, I, again, it was pretty much country music. The, the, the most pop I got was Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he got wasted away again in Margaritaville. So that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, it, it, in this getaway of yours, while you're listening to the music and uh, dreaming of talking to Eleanor Roosevelt, and I'm going to take for granted that it, you and I are both grandparents at this point. You want you want to see the grandkids come around a little bit. What's on the menu? Well, I mean, uh, we just had our grandchildren for three weeks. My uh, <laughs> my son-in-law is in the. My son-in-law's in the Navy, and uh, they were moving across country for the next set of orders. 
uh, as we were talking about earlier. And um, so we babysat our, our two grandkids for three weeks and it was wonderful. We're exhausted, but, uh, but it was a great experience. And you know what? We, we just, uh, we we have a pool in the backyard here in Alexandria, and so we spent a lot of time because it was hot here, and spent a lot of time in the pool just swimming. And so if if we get our grandkids, and hopefully we will one day down at the little cottage down on the beach, yeah. I I think we would just go to the beach, go swimming, just let them just let them go in that nice warm Gulf water and and have a lot of fun with them. They they really took to the pool, they took to the water both really really well. So, but what's on the menu to eat at night um, and your favorite beer, you had mentioned beer with Dale Earnhardt. Oh. Is, that, is that on the menu or is it wine? And, and what's <laughs> on the menu? I thought when you said menu, you meant like activities. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm in St. Pete, if I'm back home, uh, I'm eating grouper. Uh, there's there a, go. there's a terrific, there's a terrific uh, spot on St. Pete beach called the hurricane. And I remember when the hurricane was literally just a little shack. Uh, you could uh, you, you, you run it off the beach, go grab a grouper sandwich, and head right back to the sand. It's now a, a bigger place. It's a it's a restaurant. In fact, my my little brother just got married there uh, at the wow. hurricane, um, and uh, they make terrific grouper sandwiches still, just as good as they ever were. And uh, it's only uh, you know a few blocks away from our cottage. So uh, if I'm down there. And I got the grandkids, and we're coming off the beach. I'm gonna want, I'm gonna want a, I'm gonna want a grouper sandwich for sure. <laughs> and is it beer or wine? Uh, it depends. Uh, <laughs> it depends. It depends. It well, could also be a little bit of Woodford Reserve bourbon too. Oh, there you the go. At Knob Creek or Woodford. Well, I've got some Woodford Reserve, Woodford Reserve my brother. I've, yeah. I've got some great Woodford yeah. limited edition that you would love to enjoy. I'll have to, I'll have to have a glass with you sometime that was um that's that's from my neck of the woods that's the kentucky stuff there man that's that's always really good now that you know i i asked you wine because we were both former altar boys and we don't have to go into that story but i you know i, I got busted so anyway that's <laughs> we won't go any farther than that but um i i guess i'll close on saying with the grandkids and Every, you know, it, the president is fond of saying, despite the uh, stuff that we're going through now, that he remains more hopeful for this nation than another. When you look at your your grandkids, can you honestly say that? Yes, I, I can. Uh, I, I believe that uh, we're a great country. I wouldn't have uh, joined and served as long as I did if I didn't believe in, uh, in our country and, and what we stand for. I believe that for all our faults, and every country has them. Uh, we have this uncanny ability to self-correct, to improve. I mean, one of the great things about America is we're a, a very forward-looking country. Um, we're, we, we struggle with that sometimes, you know, with the, the, the idea of looking ahead, but yet wanting to respect the past. There's, there's a tension there. And, and that's, by and large, a healthy tension. But we, we're always looking to make things better. We're always trying to improve ourselves, our institutions, uh, our families, uh, our stations in life. And, and I believe that that will continue. It, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's not going to be without uh, uh, argument and debate and, and, uh, um, and, and sometimes heated exchanges. Uh, but I believe that uh, we all are really interested in, in improvement. 
um, and, and we may not agree on what improvement looks like, but we all want to move in that direction. And uh, and I'm I am I'm hopeful. I, I'm optimistic, and I'm I'm uh, I'm certainly proud that I have this opportunity to continue serving my country. It's a different capacity, but it's it's still service, and I'm proud that I'm able to do that. I'm proud that uh, my brothers all did, I'm, my sister did. I'm proud that my uh, that my children are, and uh, and who knows, maybe my grandchildren will also uh, grow up and join the Navy as well, or or one of the military services. But even if they don't, I I I believe that there's enough in their DNA uh, that they'll that they'll grow up to serve the country in in one form or another. Uh, because I, I think it's just it's just such a great place to live. I agree. And uh, like I told you, I think at one point in time, I every time I look in the eyes of my grandson, I just I have, you know, it renews my hope in the future of humanity. <laughs> I can't I can't say they're, 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 No, they're 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 going to be smarter than we are, Brian. They're going to yep. they're going to have they're going to have a comfort level with technology that you and I don't even now have. Um, they're going to have a uh, I'm already seeing this, not in my grandkids because they're too young, but but children uh, that are older than them. Uh, you know, um, more tolerance, more acceptance, more open-mindedness, more inquisitiveness uh, than than I than I than I, I than I had for sure. I mean, when I look back at the idiot that I was, and compared to you know, you know how my grandchildren are already shaping up, um, it's just uncanny. They're just more in tune with each other. Um, and with community, the sense of community. And I think that that's all, that's all a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I, and you and I are both children of the South. So, and we managed to get out. <laughs> so I, I, I honestly have, I, I mean, I, every time I do look at my grandson, I just go, there's the future. And I, I think it's much stronger than what you and I uh, have been able. I, and I agree. I think they're, they're going to be smarter, more tolerant and, and uh, hopefully have a better sense of humor than some of us have, but <laughs> with, that, yeah. with that said, I want to thank you for coming. It was fascinating. We didn't even get around to talking about one of the big things that, that a lot of people wanted to talk about, UAPs, because I just didn't have it in me. But we'll, maybe we'll do that again sometime. Listen, so uh, the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me today has been National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. And uh Catch us again this weekend as we uh, wrap up the week's uh, events. And then next week as we talk to Norm Eisen is next. And of course, we'll be talking also with the president of the Boston Museum of Science about climate change and AI. So that's all coming up next week on Just Ask the Question. Once again, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.